Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to the latest episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm one of your co-hosts Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, we've been away a while so how are you sir? I'm doing okay man. Um, it was doing a lot better until last night where I suddenly came down with a bout of shivers and sweats and sort of night terrors which was uh, suboptimal. But I think I'm on the mend man. Uh, I think I'm, I'm feeling better and I'm just about in good enough condition to record a show. And it's a relief isn't it because we as you mentioned have been away for what seems like what three weeks now two or three weeks i think it may i think it may have drifted out to three weeks so um yeah which isn't great it's nice to be back um they said there are reasons but we won't go into those on the show um but yeah least of which we need to stay alert that's the important thing to remember in the time we've been away so make sure you're staying alert pete that may be why you got ill last night to be fair is because you dropped your guard for for two minutes it's but. it's quite likely <laughs> yeah at times i'm not as alert as i should be and i feel like i'm letting down my uh my fellow countrymen uh, when i when i drop my alertness level below absolutely alert um we, though, man, have decided to try to make up for lost time with this show, I think it's fair to say, because rather than do a, a regular form of show, last time, of course, we had James Ewan and uh, Sig Bingham on as guests. This time, again, we're going to do something a bit different. Rather than a top five, we're doing a top ten. And we're going to focus on a more innocent time, Paul, a time ten years ago in the distant past, the year 2010. Can you remember it? It feels like only yesterday. Today's top 10 will focus on 2010, and it's something that we might bring into future shows as well, running down a top five or top 10 that focuses on a particular year, maybe a particular director or a particular actor. So some sort of themed or more focused uh, list shows will be in the pipeline. It's a weird time right now, as we've covered on the programme before. We're all in lockdown. There's not a regular cinema release schedule. There aren't any films at the cinema uh, in reality as we've discussed in previous episodes so we need to adapt like everybody else and we're going to adapt by trying to keep things fresh I guess through bringing uh, interesting spins on the regular show format so that's what we're going with today in addition we will of course have popcorn movies we're going to run down the films that we've been watching over what I would usually say is the last seven days but in fact has been the last something like 21 days uh, before all of that though man I know that there's a little bit of film news just uh, bubbling over um, in recent weeks that you wanted to talk about on the show so what has struck you from the world of film that you wanted to discuss man so yeah I've been uh, definitely Desperately trawling uh, film news just to see something that will cheer me up a little bit and see if there's been anything new announced. Um, and there's been a few bits of film news which has been quite exciting, which I didn't expect to be fair. Um, there is the first thing I wanted to talk about, and we were talking about this briefly off air, I think, Pete. Um, Sylvester Stallone has announced that Demolition Man 2 is in the works, um, originally from way back in 1993. Um, it's got its place. It's got it's got a sense of charm. I quite enjoyed Demolition Man at the time. Um, Sandra Bullock's pretty charming in it. Wesley Snipes is clearly having the time of his life, and Stallone is being Stallone um, plays a, guy, a character called John Spartan um, who ends up placed in a cryogenic prison and is awoken in the future to hunt down Wesley Snipes who's also awoken from a cryogenic prison um, so it's a very silly very very 90s sci-fi with possibly the most 90s credit sequence that I can possibly remember so where they go with Demolition Man 2 I don't know um, I think it'll be fun to watch it could be fun to see 
Uh, Snipes teamed up with Stallone again. Pete, you've not seen Demolition Man, we don't think. We were, we were I don't think so. It could well be one of those that as a teenager I sort of caught up with in the middle of the night, but I don't have much memory of it. And as you describe it, it doesn't really ring a bell uh, plot-wise. So I like Sandra Bullock. Uh, I'd give the original a go. But yeah, I don't think I've seen it, to be honest with you. So my expectation levels are kind of non-existent. But for you, this this is <laughs> promising. I don't, I don't know if it's promising. I think it would be. I'll watch it. I think it'll be funny. If, I imagine it could be funny to funny to 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 revisit. Whether it'll be any good or not, I, I'm dubious. To be honest, I'm dubious. But the the first one's got its place. I think it's a it's a fun it's a fun uh, 90s sci-fi film for sure. Um, a sci-fi film I'm more excited about though, and I've talked about this on the show so far, and I just basically any excuse to mention this film, and I will talk about it at the moment. Uh, there's been a lot of production stills re- released from Dune, from um, Denis Villeneuve's Dune, Dune, which is very very exciting. Um, I think they've absolutely nailed the look of the book in the scenes that I've the scenes that I've seen so far, no pun intended. Um, and yeah, even more excited about this than I was previous to the production stills. I think we're long overdue a trailer, um, and hopefully we get one soon. Pete, any thoughts? Have you seen these? Have you seen the stills? Have you been following this as closely as I have? Uh, no, absolutely not. I'm pretty detached. Um, you know, I'm just sort of drifting away in <laughs> an isolated bubble at the moment. I don't think I've read a single bit of film news in the last month, if I'm honest. Um, have you not? Okay. No, I don't think so. I, I haven't even read, you know, which is very unlike me. I haven't even read this month's Sight and Sound, which I've probably read sort of fairly religiously for about the last 10 years. So that's mm. how much I've fallen off. Um, but yeah, Denny Villeneuve is a film director that I like a lot. Dune is an interesting prospect because always this thing that felt like it was um, there was more potential there and there was an opportunity to make something great from that material. So mm. yeah, I'm I'm keen. I mean, do you have any idea when we're actually going to see it though? When- Supposed to be December at the moment. They haven't announced they haven't announced the delay. Um, Principles of Photography closed back in July um, of last year. So I'm very much. I imagine it's very much in the latter stages of or mid stages of post-production at the moment I guess so um, they haven't announced the delay um, as of yet but I guess that may change it depends when cinemas reopen it depends if they move around their slate again it may it I mean I'm anticipating a delay at this point because the fact that everything else has been pushed back but at the same time a lot of things have been pushed back all the way into next year so it may be that this could could be a big Christmas tentpole so um, yeah we'll see hopefully not but yes kind of anticipating this being delayed if I'm honest but we shall see we shall see. Do you think, uh, on a, you're saying a, a possible December release date, do you think we're back in cinemas by December? Mm, it's very difficult to tell, isn't it, I think, at the moment. I think if if there's no second spike, which seems to be inevitable, I think, at the moment, I think even today in the news the R rates jumped up since they, since they lifted the lockdown, which is concerning. Um, if there's a second spike, then I think all bets are off as to when we'll be back in bars, any sort of public places, really. Um, what, what are your thoughts, Pete? Do you think do you think they'll be back? Do you think? Ah, uh, I mean, like you say, of course, it's it's difficult to say it. it. You'd like to think so. I mean, you'd like to think that we could get back to even if we have sort of socially distant cinema going, limited numbers and that kind of thing. It's just how worth it it's going to be for branches of cinemas to reopen mm. on that basis. So we'll see as time goes on. I mean, you have to be, I think, in a time like this, as much as you can, you have to be positive and you have to hope that things will improve and can improve. And therefore, I think that um, we all, you know, have responsibility as far as it, this goes in terms of doing the right thing and not doing the the kind of reckless thing or irresponsible thing here. And, and with all of that having been said, perhaps, perhaps we can be back in the cinema by the end of the year. I mean, it would be fantastic, wouldn't it? To, to at least see something else in 2020 on a cinema screen you know yeah 
Well, well, tenets, Tenet, interestingly, hasn't been pushed back. They're adamant that if cinemas are open, Tenet's going to come out on July 14th, come hell or high water. But I can't see that happening. That seems that seems too soon, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, December and July yeah. are com- yeah. completely different propositions. I think, yeah, July to me seems very unlikely. I mean, it's like the um, some of the summer music festivals that were in that sort of June-July window that delayed cancellation and it just felt inevitable mm. that they were going to go and it was just sort of buying time. And so, yeah, uh, we'll see. Hopefully we'll get some films at the end of the year in a cinema near you, but um, it remains to be seen. Of course it does. And we just go week to week at the moment or three weeks to three weeks with this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a- any other news, Paul, as far as cinema stuff? Uh, yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up and this is a film that you probably have to watch on Curzon anyway. Uh, this is uh, Wong Kar Wai, um, director of In the Mood for Love, um, The Grand Master, um, among some other incredible films, Ashes of Time. Um, yeah, a reasonably talented director, I would say, <laughs> Wong Kar Wai, uh, in the grand scheme of things. He's shooting a new film uh, called Blossoms, which is rumoured to be kind of like a spiritual sequel to In the Mood for Love. Now, that starts shooting in July. Um, he notoriously takes his time shooting films anyway, so I imagine it's going to be a couple of years before we see this. But I thought it I thought it worthy of mention. I didn't see my Blueberry Nights, Pete, which was his English language debut, which is probably one of his more recent works. Um, are you excited for a new one? Yeah, I film? Did, you've got to say that surely it starts shooting in July in inverted commas, because isn't it the same situation that shooting schedules are going to be pushed so, back yeah. as well? But yeah, I mean, this was this was an article from May the 13th in Variety yeah. reported this, so... Um, yeah, interesting to see whether it does make that. Yeah, start date. I um, I absolutely love Wong Kar Wai as a film director. In the Mood for Love is probably one of my favourite films of all time. Uh, my Blueberry Nights is certainly not one of my favourite films of all time, and is is a real <laughs> stain on a career. I mean, yeah, I that's, I've not caught. I still haven't caught up with it. I think you've put me off it. To it's be a conversation <laughs> for another time. But yeah, there's as a as a sort of avid Wong Kar Wai fan, uh, that was. That was tough. It was a tough experience uh, to encounter that movie, and it just it just didn't work. But um, the back catalogue is astonishingly good. I mean, if you know listeners to our show, obviously, I'd imagine we've got a lot of film literate people who listen to this, and you may well be aware or versed in Wong Kar Wai already. If not, then dive in as soon as possible because it's just like the word sumptuous can rarely be applied more more appropriately yeah. <laughs> to any film director. So yeah. Uh, Check out anything you can, bar my Blueberry Nights, if you've got any sense. Um, and uh, yeah, I definitely am looking forward to anything that that guy does next. Uh, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. I, I I can't wait. I think he's a tremendous film director. No, absolutely. Um, and that's it, really, in terms of film news that I wanted to discuss um, at, at this point of the week. So yeah, that brings us to the end of the film news section. We'll be back uh, after this with Popcorn Movies. And here we are, Popcorn Movies, the section of the show where Paul and I discuss the films that we've been watching recently. It's usually over the period of seven days, this time a period of about 21 days, so we've had to whittle down. Paul, how many have you got this week, or how many are you going to go with? Well, I could have gone with, basically I've watched all of the Star Wars films and all but one, rewatched all but one of the Mission Impossible films. So what I'm going to do, Pete, for you is an individual review of each of those films. No, I'm not I'm not going to do that, I promise. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to talk about, briefly talk about my rewatching of the Star Wars series with uh, perhaps a confessional about my hate for The Last Jedi, but you'd have to look forward to that in a minute. Um, and yeah, but that, I'll probably leave it there, to be honest. I'll talk about those two series of films that I've been rewatching. Um, so yeah, it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be too long, I promise, despite having watched all of those cool. films. Cool. Okay, well, let's dive in then. Do you want to go first or, or second? 
Uh, you can you can start. Okay, uh, first one for me this week is a gem. There are a couple of gems I've whittled down from probably a dozen films or so that I've seen in the period of time since we last recorded to four or five that I thought were worth talking about. Uh, well, four that are worth talking about, one that I've just put in here because I want to laugh at it. But uh, the, the first film uh, to mention is Song of the Sea. Have you caught up with this yet, Paul? No. Song of the Sea is this... Uh, just beautifully animated, hand-drawn animation um, around, uh, I believe they are Irish um, mythology, Irish stories, folk stories about uh, sort of magical creatures that come from the sea and the impact that these creatures have on the life of a small girl. It's a a film where when it had ended, I spoke to my wife and I said, I think that was almost perfect for mm. what it was aiming at i think it didn't put foot wrong and i mean i've seen some negative uh, or some critical uh, points sort of leveled at some of the sea i just thought it was an absolute treat it the thing looks like a kind of hand-drawn uh, s- sketchbook's the wrong word like a like a beautifully illustrated hardback book in film form and to say more than that would maybe be to spoil it, but just think sort of magic, realist, uh, fantastical childhood story um, full of visual creativity and flair that just takes you on this beautiful, beautiful journey uh, and absolutely worth the trip. So, yeah, Song of the Sea, um, I won't say more than that, but that's my first film for this week. Paul, uh, where, where do you want to start in terms of your review? So, yeah, first up for me, as I said, I'll, I'll talk about it as kind of a, a series as opposed to the individual films. So the, the 4K Blu-ray release of, of Star Wars arrived as my birthday, a very generous birthday present from various relatives, which was very nice. Uh, so I've been re-watching all of the Star Wars films from Episode 1 all the way up through to Rise of the Skywalker, uh, which, Pete, I noticed you've watched on Letterboxd, so maybe we can talk about that when i get to it in a minute because i'm intrigued to see your thoughts now um yeah so from episode one all the way through to rise of skywalker um brief thoughts summary on kind of each trilogy really i guess up until the new ones um the prequel trilogy i still have some big problems with these they I, at points i kind of think they're not always as bad as i remember them being i think they've all got some good elements in them um and i like the fact that watching them back to back in in the kind of which then back to back with the with the second two with the the first trilogy and then the new trilogy, I like the fact they tried to they tried a different approach to the Star Wars films. They don't feel like they're rerunning the original trilogy, so I'll give them credit for that much. Um, I don't think we technology was ready for the kind of full digital world that they've delivered. So I think they do they have aged pretty badly, which is a shame. Um, the first and second one certainly aren't aren't good films by a long stretch. Um, and Revenge of the Sith for me is clunky in places but the good just about outweighs the bad that's probably the only prequel i would say i'd like um but i I still have my reservations so that's the it's the prequel trilogy um the classic trilogy i've rewatched again i I still find them nigh on flawless i don't really share people's issues with um uh, return of the jedi um i don't really have a problem with the ewoks it's slightly lazy they reuse the death star um but the star wars you can't argue with its influence and you hope as it's now known can't argue with the influence still an incredible film uh the trench run is what for me one of the most exciting scenes in cinema full stop um and empire strikes back is one of my favorite films of all time and remains as such so i've talked a lot about that i'm not going to talk much more on it um the only the one thing I wanted to focus on is rewatch the sequel trilogy now, and I'll involve you in a minute, Pete, on on um, 
Rise of Skywalker, if I may. Um, yeah, Force Awakens I still really enjoy as a film. It does lean a little bit too heavily on A New Hope. There's no arguing that. But as a film in its own right, I did really enjoy it. I think it is, it's got a good pace. I think it looks great. Um, and I have a great time with it. Uh, Last Jedi, Pete, interestingly enough. Um, this is probably the first time I've seen it properly since the cinema. Because uh, I fell asleep the first time I watched it on Blu-ray. Um, it's won me over a bit more this time around, Pete. I'll be honest. I think in the context of watching it, in line with all the other Star Wars films, I quite like the fact it tries something different. Um, I didn't necessarily love it at the time, as everyone's aware. Um, but the more uh, watching it properly for a second time round, I quite like the fact it took a different approach with with Luke's character. Um, it feels quite fresh, and I quite like what Ryan Johnson's tried to do. I don't think it all works. I think there's certain scenes that could be cut out. There's some the can the Casino Planet scene. I think is pretty poor, if I'm honest. Um, and the the humor doesn't all work for me. Uh, but that being said, yeah, I've, I've warmed to it a lot. I would say I probably quite enjoyed it this time round. Um, and it's arguably, well, not arguably, it's definitely a better film than uh, than Rise of Skywalker. Um, Pete, do you want to come in on Rise of Skywalker just to interrupt me talking about Star Wars for two minutes? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'm going to add much, though. The, the word that comes to no. mind when I think of Rise of Skywalker is tedious. I just found it quite okay. tedious. I. I, I know, like we've had the conversation on the show before, I am not the guy to discuss with any authority Star Wars because I've just not given it the investment that you have and also that many people probably listening to this have. And every time I open my mouth to talk about Star Wars, you know that I'm going to say something that's probably going to be at best sort of lukewarm or mediocre. I just didn't find a lot to care about in this film. And I was a person, strangely, and it's funny that you're talking about it now, Paul, that... Um, the Last Jedi, I, as far as Star Wars, recent Star Wars movies go, I found relatively entertaining. I didn't really mm. understand the level of sort of hatred that was not from yourself necessarily, but I just mean from the fan base at large. I don't know from what position some Star Wars fans are shooting at these movies from. Because, I mean, you have this, this uh, episode one, two and three, which are, you've just talked about, which are, to my mind, largely poor films yeah, uh, agreed, and then yeah. you know you've got the original trilogy which I hold my hands up to the fact that yes I'm not the biggest Star Wars fan but those are entertaining films I like those films and I can see why they've got such a great reputation but then to have yeah just a big pile on on something like The Last Jedi seemed to me a little bit strange given the the, the background I suppose coming in um, but yeah the, I don't know man what do you think of Rise of Skywalker I just I don't find Daisy, Daisy Ridley particularly engaging. I didn't find the plot particularly interesting. And I can't remember very much about it at all. And I watched it quite recently. And I think that's always, for me, a, a sort of sure hallmark of the fact that a film really hasn't worked from my point of view anyway. So, I mean, yeah, what are your thoughts? What have I missed? Is there anything particularly outstanding about Rise of Skywalker? I mean, I think it, it's a tricky one because I've reassessed The Last Jedi to an extent that I have, but I think the... the the difficulty comes with Rise of Skywalker is the fact that there wasn't there wasn't an overarching creative voice over this trilogy. I think they should have written the trilogy and then farmed it out to people to direct. Actually, have a lot in script for each film, and this is where the story's going. Instead, what they seem to have done is given the first part to one director, given it to Ryan Johnson, who's rewritten bits that he didn't like from Force Awakens. Then it went to Colin Trevorrow, who got fired, and then it went back to J.J. Abrams, who then, for me, Rise of Skywalker feels like a very rushed sequel to Force Awakens and almost tries to unwrite what happened in the Last Jedi. Um, but then you could argue that it, Ryan Johnson kind of wrote the trilogy into a corner with Last Jedi and where do you go next? So 
the big the biggest problems I have with Rise of Skywalker are the fact it's the whole thing is hugely rushed, massively rushed. It feels like there's there's two films worth of story in here, and they just sort of ble breeze through everything. There's 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 a complete lack of context context to it. The Emperor comes back. It's not explained how the Emperor comes back, um, like at all. It's just it's just a, a charge to the end basically, and I think it's. For me, as a, as a massive Star Wars fan, it didn't leave me completely unsatisfied. I like some of the set pieces. Um, I think the film looked good. I don't mind bringing the Emperor back. I think that that works when you watch them all together. Is the overarching series bad guy? But just because I didn't mind that he came back, I didn't like the way they brought him back. There was zero context to it. The whole film was rushed, and it, for me as a Star Wars fan, it wasn't a disaster. But for someone watching it who's not a Star Wars fan, I'm not sure what you could take from it. So, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I can completely see why it would leave you cold, Pete. To be honest, yeah, and and I mean, I don't want to sort of pile on here, but Daisy Ridley for you, engaging leading lady. She, I thought she was for me. I thought her strongest performance was in Force Awakens. Mm. I think she, I, I really think she was better in that um, than than she was in the others. I think she, I've, I've warmed. I think I've warmed to the Ray character and possibly warmed to her performances, but certainly when I first watched the the sequel trilogy, um, not wishing to be not wishing to be unduly horrible, but she's not the strongest actress in it by by quite some margin, I would say, compared to other people in it. And then so it's a shame, really, because some of the stronger actors you've got, like uh, John Boyega's character, seems to get sidelined in the later films. So that's that's a bit of a shame. But who's the who's the actress I always forget the name of from uh, A Monster Calls, who was in one of the Star Wars movies? Oh, Felicity Jones. Felicity Jones. Yeah, yeah, I thought, I mean, again, like, who am I? I don't really know what I'm talking about when it comes to this this stuff. But Felicity Jones, I, I just an actress I like more. And I thought mm. she, was, she was more engaging, more interesting. But... Yeah, she's good in Rogue One, to be fair. Yeah, really mm. good in Rogue One. So yeah, that's yeah, that's that's the that's Star Wars. That's the that's the least time I've ever spent talking about all nine uh, Skywalker saga films. So uh, Pete, back to you, sir. Do you, I, just to cap on that Star Wars yeah. thing, do you think there's a certain, to a certain extent, and please disagree if I've got this completely wrong, but you know sometimes you have like a band that you really love and you'll tell everyone how much you love this band. But when you really sit down in the cold light of day, you realise that what you love are the like first two albums. And since then, they've put out a further five albums of kind of diminishing returns. And really, if you see them live, you just want them to play the stuff off the first two albums. Do you get the analogy when it comes to Star Wars yeah, movies? I, I, I'm, to I'm totally with you, to be honest. And that's the thing. There's always there's always been um, this kind of there's always been a clash in me from someone who like who who is would just loosely describe themselves as a cinephile, I guess, um, in terms of what's a good film and what do I like that isn't necessarily great. And I'll always have a soft soft spot for Star Wars. But I think my frustration with a lot of Star Wars fans is you read it on the Instagram page where people are going, oh, the the, the latest trilogy's shit. And they, they either they throw their toys out the pram like babies. There's, there's no doubt about it. Um, and then people just go, no, a true fan would like Star Wars no matter what they put out. I'm like, well, no, no that's not that's not how it works. Like, I... I enjoy the prequels, like I genuinely do. So, but I know they're not great films. I enjoy elements of all of the prequels. I know they're not great films. Um, yeah, the, the ultimately they haven't they haven't come. I don't think they've come close to matching um, the original trilogy as of yet. Rogue One, I think, possibly came the closest for me in terms of quality of film. But yeah, I completely get that analogy. But every time I hear a lightsaber, I'm hooked back in, so I'm fucked. <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, man, like in the analogy, uh, and I've got various bands in my mind as I say this, but when they bring out a new record, I'm always excited for the new record, yeah. even though ultimately deep down, I know that it's not going to come close to the first couple of albums, you know, I'm always excited for it. And I, and I kind of think like, there's an obvious solution to the, the sort of zealot fan who gets incredibly angry about the latest Star Wars release, just swerve those films, pretend they don't exist. If yeah, you're so upset yeah. by them, you know, just just 
just don't bother and just stick. You've already, nothing of this t is taking anything away from the films that you've had in the past. You know, clutch those to your bosom and ignore the new ones, I guess. Yeah, it's that simple. Just don't watch them. Just watch the original trilogy if that's what you want to watch. It's not. It's not difficult. Oh, talking um, of yeah. talking of things that you shouldn't watch, Paul. My second popcorn movie of the week is uh, the film Cats. Paul, I caught up with the film Cats. You I've lucky seen man. Cats. <laughs> I know you've also seen Cats, so we wanted to devote a whole episode to Cats, but we'll just keep it to these couple of minutes. Um, yeah, Tom Hooper, not a film director that I'm particularly enamoured with, uh, likes the sort of um, filmic equivalent of the sound of his own voice. Uh, here we have... Um, it turns out Cats the Musical is shit. I didn't realise this before I saw the film because I've not seen the musical. But if this is anything to go by, the musical's terrible. All that it is comprised of is individual cats in their sort of uncanny valley CGI'd costumery uh, form as they are in the film here. Coming onto the screen, introducing themselves and then doing a song and dance number about who they are as a member of the Jellical Cats, again, in and of itself, like an irritating tag. Um, I, I, I was desperately trying to find something to like about this, Paul. Anything at all to like about it. But man, it just drags on. And another cat arrives. And another cat does an introductory song. And then that cat goes off and is replaced with another cat. And oh, look, this cat's from the railway. Oh, let's sing a song about the railway. Which vocabulary related to railways could we include into the clunky, underwritten lyrics to the songs? I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber. I don't like musicals, by and large. But when they're of good quality, you know, this is like the thing we talk about sometimes with like exploitation cinema and I get yeah, on my high yeah. horse and I go like oh no I like it if it's of really like a good quality and I don't mean quality in production value I just mean like it has something to say or it's about something or it's it's sort of got a hook for me and I feel the same way about musicals man like if the musical is going to move me emotionally or is going to do something that's really spectacular, then I, I could get on board. You know, as we, as I famously admitted on this show, I was broken apart by The Greatest Showman. Maybe I was feeling yeah. a bit <laughs> fragile at the time. I don't know. But what can you like about this? Unless you're already like a just, you know, diehard devotee of cats and then like the Star Wars situation anymore is good. I guess there's that. But otherwise... The, the actress in the leading role, who I believe is a, a ballerina by trade, uh, looked intriguingly attractive as a sort of cat-human hybrid. I can give it that. <laughs> That's what you've come Apart for. from that, apart from that, man, I pff, was there anything that you enjoyed about the film Cats, Paul? No, not really. There was a couple of the set pieces I think were okay, but yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. There's no. If that, as you say, if that's what the musical is like, then I can't see that. That would be a struggle for me to sit through as well, to be honest, because there's no, there's just nothing to it. It's just it, characters get introduced and then the film finishes. <laughs> Why are they so small? When they do the sequences where they've used practical uh, sort of effects and or semi-practical effects, they've, they've got a set where everything is much bigger than the human actors who are playing the cats. But the cats in some of the sequences that look more CG'd are too small. They're too small in comparison to the stuff around them. This kind of stuff bugged the hell out of me. There's some bits. There's some bits in it that reminded me of the um, Eraserhead Radiator sequence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good pull, and yeah, something more interesting to think about if you find yourself trapped watching this thing. I would say something that's worthwhile from Cats is check out uh, Corridor Crew. Those guys that I mentioned a couple of months back on the show in credits. Uh, they did a breakdown of the CG stuff in Cats, and that's quite entertaining to watch. But aside from that, no, avoid terrible. Uh, what else do you want? To talk about Paul 
Uh, yeah, briefly, I want to touch on the Mission Impossible series because I've rewatched all of those bar number six, um, which I'm very excited about because it was one of our top films. Was it last year Mission was Fallout came out? I think it was. Maybe the year before. Maybe well, two years now, yeah. Maybe two years ago. But yeah, Fallout, I, I think, is absolutely incredible. And I realised it's been many, many, many years since I went back and watched the series from the beginning, which started all the way back, if you can believe it, in 1996 with Brian De Palma's Mission Impossible, which is makes me feel very old, uh, I'll be honest. Um, yeah, so just just briefly, Mission the first Mission Impossible, I still think, stands up remarkably well. I think the... The um, it's, it's slight spoiler warning here. It's a bit obvious if you cast John Voight that he might not that he might not be all that he seems, um, and that kind of takes a little bit away from it. That being said, that it's still I think well written. I love how Brian De Palma the film is. Like there's there's no compromising in his um in his auteur vision in this at all, despite the fact it was a big blockbuster at the time. Um, all the Brian De Palma tropes are certainly present in this, which is nice. Um, the CIA um, but the CIA break in the one the scene that everyone knows um, where Tom Cruise dangles in from a ventilator shaft to rob a CIA vault is as tense today as it was as it was back in 1996 honestly that bead of sweat that runs off his glasses literally had me on the edge of my seat and I, I loved it and the the set piece at the end in the channel tunnel with the helicopter again genuine goosebumps just I was so impressed how well how well it held up I did not expect it to be on a par with the recent entries and it's yeah I don't think any of them are quite as good as fallout but it's great I really really enjoyed it um and I can say that for all of them. I'm going to say that for all of them. I'm going to keep keep it brief. I'm going to say that for all of them. I really enjoyed Rogue Nation number five a lot more the second time around, um, and I enjoyed all of them a lot more than I did the absolute what the fuck were they thinking? Mission Impossible two. Pete, do you remember Mission Impossible two? <laughs> Mission Impossible two, in my mind, is the uh, what's it called? Four Leaf Clover, the Metallica track that they had with the music yeah. video with Cruiser like on the the rocks in yeah. in uh, Australia or something like that, right? Uh, yeah. Didn't they have? Uh, I think Linkin Park did something Link for Biscuit. the soundtrack. Link Biscuit did a Mission Impossible riff. Take take a look around. Yeah, that yeah. was the thing. Um, yeah, and uh, it was very much of its time. It was a sort of it was the new metal um, sort of Mission Impossible movie, as far as I remember it. Not yeah, grouping it's... Metallica into that, but it was kind of in a career slump period for Metallica as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think it's a career slump for everyone, to be honest. John, John Woo directed this, and he's been given as much... It was weird, because I remember coming out of... Uh, I remember watching the first one, I was like, oh, it's, it's really nice when directors get to do what they like in a, in a sort of in a franchise film. And then when you watch Mission Impossible 2, you're like... It's really not great when directors are allowed to do what they allowed to do what they want to do with a franchise film because like it feels like all of it's in slow mo. It feels like it would be like 15 20 minutes shorter if there wasn't slow mo in it. There's some awfully cringeworthy misogynistic dialogue. At one point Dougray Scott's villainous character makes some comment about uh, women being like monkeys you just hand them a bar and they grab for it and I was just like what the fuck is this um, lots of lots of slow-mo of Tom Cruise doing impossible um, martial arts moves um, Dougray Scott not a good actor does not hold the screen uh, well at all um, Pandy Newton again just looks a little bit lost here and is just a sex object the storyline is not anywhere near as smart as any of the other films it's just i'm sorry it's just a bad film it just really is a bad film and it's not really a surprise it took six years for mission impossible 3 to appear 
Um, so yeah, with the exception of uh, Mission Impossible 2, um, all the others, Mission Impossible 3, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation, I thought were great. I think it's a really, really strong series. Um, I've forgotten how much I like the series. I like how they're, they're, they're written for adults. Uh, they're not overly complicated. They're not stupidly convoluted, but they're, they're quite cleverly written. The set pieces are superb. Um, and yeah, Rogue Nation, probably for me, the strongest of the, of the first five, with the exception of Fallout, probably the strongest in the series. So yeah, I am... Uh, well, I was a fan anyway, but I'm a newly signed up member. Big, big fan of the Mission Impossible films now, having rewatched them all. So I would suggest everyone does the nice. same. Nice. Um, is that you done for popcorn movies? Yes. Okay, I'm going to bang these out really quickly then. So I just have got three to quickly mention. One of them is Bad Education. Bad Education is the new one from Corey Finley. The reason that I was interested here was that Corey Finley has got one directorial credit to his name, and that is Thoroughbreds with Anya Taylor-Joy, which was great. Like this, it, yeah. Yeah, this really sort of singular vision, a kind of icy, cold execution of a movie uh, that I really, really enjoyed. And so... Had high hopes for this. Bad Education tells the, I believe, true story of an American school board that is fiddling the books and spending money inappropriately on things that it shouldn't be. At the head of said board is a character played by Hugh Jackman. We've got in supporting roles uh, the likes of Ray Romano. Um, also, Alison Janney is here as, a, again, somebody who's playing a bit fast and loose with the old company credit card. Uh, it it's an interesting one, man. It's an interesting second film. Essentially, what occurs is that a student who is doing a project for, I think, the, the high school, possibly, or college newspaper starts to investigate just a little bit, ask a few questions about school board spending. This is a, a, a reporter played by, or a young youth reporter, let's say, uh, played by the actress Geraldine Viswanathan, who you will know as, I think, John Cena's daughter in blockers oh yeah yeah, Um, yeah. here uh, really really good she's i think this maybe the standout performance in the film it just felt a little bit safe given what i'd come to hope for from this film director and it feels almost like a you know one of those sort of crossover films that a director directs in order to prove that they can take on big budget studio Mm. projects and they're a safe pair of hands there's still flair here there's still a bit of a you know some fingerprints of Corey Finley's style but I hope he does something smaller next I don't know what's next in the pipeline but this all it, it was it was fine it was fine it was pretty well acted it's an interesting enough story but it just didn't have the teeth of of something like Thoroughbreds Um, Talking of things that have teeth, though, I also caught up with the 2015 film I Smile Back. This is from a director called Adam Salke, who's, I think, a fairly young film director. And it stars, and this is really the headline, Sarah Silverman. Do you know about this film, Paul? No, no, I wasn't aware of it at all. I like Sarah Silverman. I'm a big fan, but I'm not. um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating pr- proposition because of the fact that this is by far and away the greatest performance Sarah Silverman's ever given in, in anything dramatic anyway, because she crops up here and there as a sort of supporting actress in various dramatic roles, in addition to the stand-up and comedy stuff that she does as well. And having read her, her autobiography, The Bedwetter, a few years back about her early life and teenage struggles with depression and bedwetting as you might imagine from the title it's so interesting to see her here thrust into a role where she's playing a mother who is mentally unstable 
um, sort of trying to hold things together, but also in the grasp of various addictions that are threatening to untangle her family life um, with in pretty short order. As I said at the outset, though, Paul, the headline really is Sarah Silverman's performance. I think the film itself at times is a little bit pedestrian and maybe the material that she's given isn't always as sparkling as as she might deserve but she digs deep into herself there's so much that feels honest and sort of open and raw about the Silverman performance here that even for that alone I would really quite strongly recommend this okay. uh, you know with the caveat that yeah like I say elements a little bit pedestrian sometimes it looks a little bit underlit or a little bit cheaply made and there's budgetary constraints of course but as a kind of Star making performance is the wrong way to put it because it's not showy in that way. But as a, a sort of testament to what Silverman's capable of as a dramatic actress, this is, is kind of amazing. Um, and the the gem, the the real um, highlight, I think, for me of this week's popcorn movies that I wanted to talk about is Minding the Gap from 2018. Have you seen this, Paul? I have not. Please see it as soon as you possibly can. Okay. Um, Minding the Gap is this sprawling documentary that was filmed by a guy called Bing Liu, who since has gone into um, working on some pretty big projects in the uh, cinematography department. I think he worked on uh, Transcendence, perhaps. Um, But he's this guy who basically, as a young teenager, started filming his friends skateboarding. He was that kid. There's always one kid, right, in the group of skateboarders who's the <laughs> yeah. I'm going to film the kickflips kid, right? He was that kid. He also skated. And as it transpires in the film, he had some issues, family issues that he was trying to escape when he would get down to the skate park and film his his bits and, and shoot his friends as they were, you know, performing and skating around. The film, though, like I say, it's this kind of sprawling thing. It follows his close group of friends and the ups and downs of their lives, not unlike something like Hoop Dreams, where Mm. you see the rise and fall. At certain points in the film, a particular individual is doing quite well, things seem to be turning for them, and then things don't go so well. This is an astonishing achievement for a young filmmaker. I mean, yes, he benefits from being in the right place at the right time and getting additional footage, uh, filming everything, essentially. This is something that's come up before when we've discussed, you know, documentaries that strike gold, like uh, Capturing the Freedmans or something like that, where you just happen to have had cameras rolling at the right times. But as this kind of time capsule of youth and coming of age and the struggles of the uh, society in which you live and of the kind of late capitalist uh, malaise that a lot of America and the wider world finds itself in. I think this is really just stellar stuff. And, you know, wherever he goes next and whatever he does next, I am absolutely an acolyte of this guy being loose. So um, not an easy watch at times, pretty emotionally um, intense, uh, but also joyful and also celebratory of a time in your life that you'll never get again as a teenager and all the experiences that you go through at that time so i can't recommend it enough mining the gaps amazing find it where you can watch it as soon as you can can i can i throw one more in that i wanted to talk about actually um so this is the big netflix release uh released back early i think end of april early may i think this is extraction uh starring uh chris hemsworth uh, directed by one of, I believe, the stunt coordinator and I think one of the possibly second unit director from Endgame, um, Sam Hargrave is his name. So he's very much, uh, very much knows his stunts. Produced by um, the Russo brothers, so a pretty big hitter for Netflix. This one, um, yeah, I do. I'd be intrigued to see if you've seen this, Pete, or not yet. But um, 
yeah, I, I didn't know what to think of this. I think it's one of those films, like, it's incredibly well put together in terms of an action film. I mean, we're talking, like, John Wick quality to some of the set pieces here. I think it is it's kind of that well handled. You can tell the guy, the guy's got chops for action. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And there's one particular tracking shot that, even if you don't like much of the rest of the film, then there's a tracking shot that you should watch. It's about, I think it's about a sort of eight or nine minute scene that goes from car chase to fight back to car chase. And it's all it's just an incredible, incredible technical accomplishment. The problem for me, though, with this film was the fact that the characters are, are very, very bland. Hemsworth, Hemsworth's strengths, I think, are when he plays comedic roles. We've seen that in Thor Ragnarok, and certainly I think the, that's definitely his strength as, his strength as a comedic actor, not, not this kind of cliched mercenary with a past that has all of his charms completely neutered by his character called, called Tyler Rake, of all things. He just feels like a faceless stereotype, and I think it, as I said, it just neuters Chris Hemsworth's charms. And if you can't, if you can't get into the hero, then you're struggling with this. The villains are predictable. The villains are forgettable, sorry, and the plot's very predictable. Um, it's one of those films that I don't have a problem with with formulaic genre pieces. That's fine. But this, again, and I think the other problem with this is just very, very dour and self-serious. It just suffers from taking itself far too seriously. I think it's trying to be this heavyweight, it's trying to be sort of this heavyweight, serious film at the same time. And I think the difference between something like this and John Wick is that John Wick knows what it is. Like John Wick doesn't take itself seriously. And that, for me, is as big a part of a charm as the stunt in John Wick is that it's funny with it uh, this is in desperate need of someone just to give him a slap and just go can you do this with a smile please because it's just a bit too serious and a bit dour so aside from the technical merit I can't really recommend this one so with that one out of the way that brings us to the end of popcorn movies which means that we'll take a brief break and we'll be right back with the top 10 for this week not a top five double value uh, top 10 and this is the top 10 films of the year 2010 right after this Right, well, welcome to our journey back in time by 10 years. Um, Pete, what were you up to in 2010? In the year 2010, Paul, I was in my final year living in South Korea, believe it or not. Um, so, yes, what a time, what a heady time that was. I actually, uh, what were, yeah, tell me what you were up to, and then I want to give a little bit of general world background for the year 2010. Okay, so I was, I was in my second year of my film degree at university is this the year i think this is the year before we met pete 2010 i may be mistaken i may be mistaken but um yeah so we, I was yeah at, we would have met we would have met in 2012 okay so yeah i would have been in my yeah i would have been at university at this time as a as an immature mature student <laughs> uh yeah give us fill us in what, what was going on in 2010 just the headlines so yeah <laughs> top 10 headlines from the year 2010 just to get you back in the in the mindset of that time it was of course the 2010 winter olympics in vancouver we had the icelandic volcanic eruption which left that cloud across the uh, sort of europe essentially and stopped a load of flights from from taking to the air at that time uh, if you recall the Chilean miners crisis was in the year 2010 where the miners got stuck uh, and had to be rescued from 2,000 feet underground we had the uh, Times Square bomb that was foiled we had um, in addition oh WikiLeaks was in the news in 2010 for the various cables that were released at that time uh, tension now this is relevant to what I mentioned what, that I was doing tension between North and South Korea in 2010 escalated the Chonan um ship was sunk by the North Koreans. It was a South Korean vessel. This led to a period in 2010 where we had increased uh, what essentially sounded like air raid sirens, which is always calming, uh, you know, when, when air raid sirens go off in your in your neighbourhood. Uh, but it was actually just 
the the way of calling guys on military service in for additional military training, essentially, uh, but still fairly fairly disconcerting. Uh, we had uh, U.S. combat withdrawal from Iraq, the BP oil spill, and of course the Haiti earthquake at that time, and all of the relief efforts that went into aiding the people of Haiti who had devastated and you know mass numbers of casualties then. So some pretty bleak news um, as we have in almost any year that we look at, but also a spread of, I'm going to say, Paul, relatively good films if we're focusing back on the topic of cinema in the year 2010. And I think that you, dear listener, might agree once we've got to the end of our top 10. So without further ado, Paul, let's launch into it. What have you got at number 10 for your uh, the best or your favourite films of 2010? So yeah, at number 10, I've got a uh, sci-fi film I don't think gets enough love these days. And I think in a lot of circles has been widely forgotten about, but I hope it hasn't. And maybe people can tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, this is Monsters, Pete, directed by um, Gareth Edwards, who went on to direct Godzilla and uh, Rogue One um, in recent years. Um, six years after the Earth has suffered an alien invasion, a cynical journalist agrees to escort a shaken American tourist through an infected zone in Mexico to the safety of the US border. Um, so yeah, there's been a massive alien invasion which is hinted at and not really seen um, initially in parts of the film, and there's certain no-go areas where you just cannot go because the uh, the aforementioned monsters are there. Um, I just really, really like the, the pacing of this film. I think it's really cleverly done. It's a prime example of less is more um, in terms of the, the monsters are alluded to and not really seen until and not, certainly not seen um, until the end and when they do see the monsters they do it they use them in such an incredible way um, you've got that almost almost um, well it's almost a heartwarming scene when the monsters when the two monsters encounter each other um, and are clearly a couple and it kind of humanizes humanizes what's supposed to be these these horrible horrible creatures that have caused this caused this mass level of destruction I just think it's a very very clever very well written sci-fi film that as I said is the certainly is is a great example of less is more and some really strong performances here this is probably one of the early times I came across Scoop McNary um, who I think is great here and much like you Pete I think he's quite an underrated actor to be honest um and Whitney Abel is great in this as well. So yeah, Monsters is is my number 10. Yeah, and of course, real life partners, Whitney Abel and, and Scoot, your boy, uh, which adds something, I think, here. Mm. The fact that this they were married even then, I think, when they shot Monsters. And uh, yeah, you, you can see that there's this sort of palpable, believable chemistry between the two of them that I think really works. And it becomes a sort of human story that therefore distracts you from the fact that the budgetary constraints of the film leave a lot of things unseen mm. but that's done in such an effective way I think and it was one of the ones that was very close to my top 10 and could well have been on here to, to be perfectly honest but I've gone a different way uh, I wanted to get this one in just because it's a film that I genuinely really enjoyed and it's I, I could easily be snooty and leave it off the list but I'm not going to my number 10 is Tucker and Dale versus Evil oh, that's a good uh, from the year of course that is a good 2010 now you know the slight on, on this movie maybe when I think back on it is the fact that director Eli Craig has gone on to direct one more film and that was uh, called Little Evil with uh, Adam uh, Brody? Adam, Adam Bro Scott. Adam Scott, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Adam Scott, which was very weak. Uh, but this one, it just, it's just so much fun. I mean, it's, it's a, a kind of send-up of a slasher cabin in the woods kind of hillbillies do bad stuff movie and 
just beautifully over the top and gory and slapstick and funny and stupid there's uh, somebody gets put into like a threshing machine at one point in just spectacular slapstick fashion it's brilliant uh yeah I, I just i'd go back to it and i probably should go back to it sometime soon maybe i won't rate it as highly who knows but yeah just had loads of fun with it so i wanted to get it on the list that's tucker and dale versus evil my number 10 what is it number nine for you at number nine for me uh, you might have heard of this one uh, toy story three um, fairly big release of the year. Um, once again, Pixar proved that they can do sequels, uh, although not not all the time with great success. But certainly, the Toy Story sequels have, have always been consistently strong. This, I think, is probably still my favourite Toy Story film. I think um, it's just it's a brilliant idea. The fact that the toys end up in a daycare centre instead of the attic. Um, it's about sort of kids letting go and let, sort of growing up, and parents letting go of children and this kind of thing. And those those elements that have always been there in Toy Story, but I think really really well handled here, um, and certainly on the heartstrings um, and an end just a, such an exciting finale that just left me again much like I did I was saying about Mission Impossible a bit towards the end I genuinely thought the toys were going to die at the end of this um, and I, I was really on the edge of my seat and I just think this is probably the series that is strongest I think the animation as as you would expect from Pixar is incredible but the jokes again they, they land almost it's one of those rare films where almost 100% of the gags land um, and yeah I had, had a great time with Toy Story 3 and it remains remains I think my favourite of the series is for sure. Well, from Toy Story 3 to Greg Araki, uh, my number nine is the, the 2010 Greg Araki movie, uh, Kaboom. This one is, uh, well, this one is, a Greg Araki movie is generally a, a sort of um, brightly coloured, bombastic, sexual awakening sort of orgy of of uh, young people getting naked and having revelations and kaboom is absolutely no different uh, this is of course the director of things like mysterious skin and doom generation and a particular kind of a white bird and a blizzard not too long ago uh, a particular type of film director that i think is a bit of a maybe a marmite film director i happen to really like greg araki so kaboom to me was just a, a kind of a pleasure you've got this guy on a college campus uh, he's having these sort of prophetic dreams of something to come could it be that it's the end of the world could it be that it's some kind of cataclysmic event within this backdrop um, he's supported by actors and actresses that I really like uh, people like Hayley Bennett who was so good in Swallow which probably I've talked about on the show if not I will do soon uh, Juno Temple who are watching basically anything uh, and yeah it's just it's just kind of peak Gregoraki in a certain way or at least peak later Gregoraki I mean maybe the the early movies are are kind of held in a slightly different esteem by by fans of this particular film director but yeah i really like kaboom and it's kind of um you know multi-colored uh, sort of explosive dynamic style of filmmaking so yes kaboom is my number nine what about it's another good shout it's another good shout i really enjoyed kaboom as well so i'll give you that i really you know i had a great time with it great time with it um where are we now my number eight uh, my number eight is a film that I know we are, I'm pretty sure you're a big fan of this as well, directed by Derek Kianfrance. This is Blue Valentine, um, starring Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams. Um, it's not a film I've, I've bought myself to watch twice, but it is a film that I find hard to remove from my memory. Um, and that's because for me, it's an incredibly potent, very, very well acted um, and very, very well written uh, drama just about a relationship essentially um, it cuts across time periods about a married couple played by Ryan Gosling and Michelle Williams and I just think there's there's 
it's just one of those films that the the honesty here about the fact that relationships do go through their ups and downs i think is is just brilliant the honesty on display here it just it feels like rather than it feels like you're watching a real relationship um without a shadow of a doubt and it doesn't mean it's always an easy watch in places it is absolutely heart-wrenching to watch but it is for me i think one of derek Ken france's strongest films um and just a very very powerful piece of work pete you've seen this should i bring this up or is this is this possibly coming on later uh no it's not it's not it, okay. it could have um but it isn't although it is a film that i i enjoy is the the wrong word but um yeah yeah i always come back to the uh the head-to-head between ryan gosling and michelle williams about the motivation for work and the motivation for ambition and it's something that stuck mm. with me since this film when uh, gosling's character who's working as a furniture removal guy right he he is told by his partner the michelle williams character that he should be more motivated where's his motivation and he replies you know motivation for what to do what and doesn't really understand maybe or has a completely different perspective on the world to what his partner has and as you say a very raw pretty realistic I guess if at times excruciatingly dark and sort of damaged uh, relationship might be like so yeah I I do appreciate the film quite a bit and uh, well as you know and as listeners to this know I mean Michelle Williams is right up there with my favorite uh, at least younger actresses so um yeah this this is really good it's a strong choice and it could like I say have well got on my list what have you got at number eight number eight for me is a bit left field it is a film called Confessions um this is from director Tetsuya Nakashima it ha- it's kind of dear to my heart a little bit because I saw it in 2000. 10 I guess or even 2009 perhaps uh, on its um, festival run when I was in South Korea although it's a, a Japanese film it tells this kind of twisty psychological thriller tale of a school teacher who is a grieving mother because her daughter has been killed in what may or may not have been an accident and she decides to get revenge on those who were responsible for the death of her daughter she may or may not have poisoned the drinking milk of a load of kids in her class <laughs> Uh, that's the start point. But what really struck me about this film when I saw it is the just wild creativity of the vision of this film director. And it's really a um, uh, a spectacle of a movie, uh, a spectacle of a movie that, that revels in interesting framing, interesting shots, the use of like slow motion, super slow motion and sort of reversed slow motion photography. Uh, really, really interesting confessions if in that sort of realm of dark Asian thrillery horrory stuff that isn't always for everybody but I think it's quite underseen and I would recommend it to people so I've not seen it so I would agree <laughs> yeah con- confessions of course from 2010 uh, I think you- you'll get that with all of the films on this list uh, yeah. it is well well worth it Paul what are we up to is number seven Number seven, yeah. So my number seven um, is a film from Darren Aronofsky. Uh, it won Natalie Portman, I think, deservedly so, Best Actress Oscar. This is Black Swan. Um, this for me is one of Aronofsky's strongest films. I think I love the I love the the visuals in this. I love the imagination that's gone into it, and I love the fact that a lot of this does feel, in many ways, like a love letter to to Suspiria, um, as much as it does feel like a love letter to Swan Lake. Um, but it's yeah, and you know, at its heart, it's it's it's. Well, obviously, there's a film about putting on a ballet, but there's a lot more to it than that. It's about um, addiction. It's about sort of drive. Um, 
shameless ambition and, and where this takes you and it's about certainly about the darker side of the human psyche as a lot of Aronofsky's stuff is so um yeah certainly some of the most um visually provocative scenes of the year I think in Black Swan certainly one of those it's one of those films that once you watch it you will not forget it even if you're not an Aronofsky fan um you you struggle to argue that this isn't a beautifully beautifully shot film um and uh yeah I think it's really really good the Natalie Portman performance is great it's one of the first times I've kind of seen a more serious role from Mila Kunis which I quite liked, um, showed that she could act pretty well, to be fair, in this. Um, and Vincent Cassell um, is on uh, great form as a bit of a bastard in this as well, which is quite nice to see. Um, so, yeah, my number seven is uh, Black Swan from Darren Aronofsky. Nice. Uh, we thought it might happen. You gave the heads up at the beginning of the record, Paul, but the fact that um, we had to be very careful that we didn't accidentally select films that didn't, strictly speaking, come out in 2010. And I have just <laughs> stumbled across one of my picks. It's too late to take it out, so I'm going to keep it. This is a film that festival screened in 2010 but it turns out that the the wide UK release was in 2011 my apologies I hold my hands up but I still want to give it some love and I don't think I've ever talked about it on the show this okay. this one is the documentary tabloid from uh, supremo documentary filmmaker Errol Morris it tells the story of a former Miss Wyoming who is charged with abducting and imprisoning a young Mormon missionary and is just this kind of brilliantly salacious all over the map crazy tale uh, truth is stranger than fiction type thing from a filmmaker that it you know again it depends maybe how much people have encountered Errol Morris as to what they think of him but things like the thin blue line standard operating procedure uh, the fog of war uh, Vernon Florida which is one that I try to recommend to people I mean there's so much to dig into if you get into Errol Morris and tabloid maybe is a good place even to start because it is just so accessible it's a wild tale and so ceaselessly entertaining so I'd recommend it for that reason even though strictly speaking I probably should have bumped it out of my list because it came out in the UK <laughs> in 2011 but uh, never Never mind, that is my number, what are we there, seven, pick, tabloid. Right, uh, number six for me is a film that I got, well, I thank. I say I thank you for it, I ultimately thank the directors, which is Dean Dubois and Chris Sanders on this one, but ultimately thank you for Pete, for, thank you Pete for getting me to actually give this a go, because my God do I love this film. Uh, this is How to Train Your Dragon, Pete, um, but that's right, it's above Toy Story 3 for me in my, uh, in my list of best films from 2010. My word is this a charming film. Like the the creation of Two Fist a Dragon is is brilliant. Jay Bruchel's performance um, as Hiccup, the the kind of the Viking sort of coming of age um, and befriending dragons, is brilliant. The animation is is superb. Some of the set pieces just are absolutely staggeringly beautiful. It's a really really well put together film. Um, and yeah, for me it's. It's the first. It's the first time DreamWorks sort of have come close. Well, have not just come close. They've rivaled Pixar um, in terms of the quality. In terms of the quality of their films, I love the trilogy. To be honest, I love all of them. But it's but it started here. Um, I did not see this anywhere near 2010. In all honesty, but it still uh, did come out in 2010. So I'm I'm having it. Um, but yeah, that's How to Train Your Dragon. Like I, I love the series. I'm incredibly fond of all the characters in it. Um, yeah, and I, I can't really speak of How to Train Your Dragon highly enough. To be honest. Yeah, it's a strong pick, man. Again, definitely one that was in contention for me because it was just such a lovely surprise uh, for want of a yeah. better description when when it came out and, and really really enjoyable I mean the sequel's good too but the first film I think is a, a cut above so um, yeah good good pick for sure and sorry because I'm going to do the same thing which is go from a joyful animation to something relatively dark <laughs> but um, my number six pick is the it's a documentary again it is uh, and everything is going fine this from the director Steven Soderbergh which I think people or who I think people will be obviously familiar with uh, from his uh, the wider sort of 
catalogue of, of fictional work. But in this case, he directs what is the capstone, really, on the life of Spalding Gray. Spalding Gray, this guy who sat in front of theatre audiences delivering monologues, in addition to being a, a Hollywood uh, sort of supporting actor of some repute. Um, he was a guy that right around this time, I guess the period in which I was living outside of the UK, I got into his monologues and then into the story of his life. And Spalding Gray, for those who don't know, uh, took his own life in the year 2004. Uh, he jumped off the Staten Island Ferry after seeing the uh, movie Big Fish, I believe, uh, which has been sort of read into a lot of different ways by, by various people. But uh, the film itself, it brings together the works of Spalding Gray and these amazing detailed monologues that he did. I mean, the fact that a guy sits on stage and delivers a monologue for sort of an hour to an hour and a half doesn't maybe to some people sound particularly appealing. But I would suggest that if you feel that way, you might not have encountered this guy's stuff because he is uh, so articulate, so insightful, so kind of open. And I can understand how people might find him a little bit boorish or a little bit full of himself at times. But I just became a little bit maybe fixated is too strong but really fascinated by Spalding Gray around this time sort of mid to late 2000s after his passing and uh, the film and everything is going fine is right up there and it's really kind of a primer as well I think for Spalding Gray for people who are interested in getting into his stuff I mean of course there are things like Swimming to Cambodia which is maybe the most famous of his original monologues um, which is worth checking out as well um, but yeah this one really really good uh, that's and everything is going fine Paul you're up to what six Five, now. five, five. Which is exciting, yeah. So number five. Um, this is where it gets quite tight, to be honest. And I've just, I've kind of been shuffling this, uh, shuffling the order around on my screen. But I've committed, so I'll stick to it. At number five for me is um, Edgar Wright's action fantasy comedy video game, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, um, which for me is was just one of the most exciting films of 2010. It's it's visually very, very exciting. Um, like I've, I don't think I've seen sort of video games or comics done so well on the screen as as this film to be honest in terms of the way it just it pops out of the screen of you it's, it's incredibly colorful he plays around the ass the more you watch it the more you notice things that you didn't see before in terms of what Edgar Wright's done, done with some of the visuals here um, he plays around with the aspect ratio which is great um, there's, there's some there's some incredible standout set pieces there's some great performances here it's one of my favorite Michael Sarah performances I think and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's really good in this and then you've got the superb you've got some great cameo from Chris Evans as, as the as one of the seven evil exes and then Brandon Ruth and and uh, Thomas Jane turning up as the vegan police uh, is great. Um, I just, yeah, there's just so much, so much to like in this film. Um, I just thought it was an absolute joy for, from start to finish. And I think it, for me, criminally underperformed at the box office. I just, it's a shame more people didn't didn't get to see this in the cinema. But if you haven't caught up with it yet, it's um, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly a well-regarded cult, something of a cult classic now. I think if it if you can say that about a film that came out in 2010, I don't know if we've come that far from it yet. But yeah, for me, Scott Pilgrim just an absolute joy from start to finish, especially as a as a big video gamer. I certainly took to it took to it in that way as well. Yeah, so yeah, Scott Pilgrim versus the World from Edgar Wright. Nice. So I come in next with oh a film director that I think we both quite like, Paul. Uh, this is Luca Guadagnino's uh, film I Am Love. Uh, which was a 2009 movie released in the UK in 2010. Um, this one, as you 
come to somewhat expect from Guadagnino uh, stars Tilda Swinton. Uh, Tilda Swinton plays this woman who has left Russia, left Russia, excuse me, to live with her husband in Italy in a just lavish surroundings. Uh, sumptuous was a word used to describe Wong Kar Wai's work earlier. Luca Guadagnino in this movie, man, is going full, full sumptuous. Uh, and it, while she is living this kind of staid, uh, stately life, she engages in, a, in an affair with a younger man, which threatens to have fairly damaging um, consequences for her and others. Yeah, Luca Guadagnino is a, a film director that I still at times um, maybe place slightly outside that sort of upper echelon of my very favourite filmmakers, but I think at the height of his powers in something like uh, I Am Love, of course this is the director of Call Me By Your Name for those who have seen that and not seen this, um, and Suspiria recently, the remake of Suspiria. But He's rebooting Scarface as well, it's just been announced weirdly enough. But... Is that right? That's an interesting yeah. choice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, anyway. Interesting choice, yeah. Um, and, and of course, going all the way back to the protagonist, which is something that was on Mubi and I reviewed on our show some time ago, where Swinton and Guadagnino's sort of filmmaking relationship relationship began he was basically a student filmmaker at that point and she was a relatively young actress and they collaborated and now they've seemingly formed this bond and I think this is one of the best things they've done together I mean of the few things they've done together maybe the best thing they've done together so yeah that one's uh, I Am Love from of course the year 2010 Paul, what's next for you? Uh, again, again, as I said, it's so close. It's so close here in terms of uh, in terms of at the top. But number four is coming at number four. It could well be number one, to be fair, depending on which mood it catches me in. Uh, this is Yorgos Lanthimos's Dogtooth. Um, Yorgos Lanthimos. This is the first time many of us encountered Yorgos Lanthimos, and what a treat Yorgos Lanthimos has turned out to be. Um, and this is, uh, I just love his the tone to his films. I mean, if you don't like edge, if you don't like black comedy, then then steer well clear of this because this is about as dark as comedy comes I think in in parts of this film it just yeah I don't like it's, it's easy to say oh you haven't seen a film quite like it before I hadn't in all honesty I think there's there's something markedly original about the tone of his film I think the performances are, are, are great in this um, and the concept is just yeah it's a very 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 dark twisted concept um, I mean IMDb's got it summed up as this which is Three teenagers live isolated without leaving their house because they're overprotective parents. So they can only leave when their dog tooth falls out. Um, that doesn't start to cover some of the things that happen um, in Dog Tooth, and I'm not. It's one of those films that I think I'm not going to not going to spoil any more of in terms of plot wise because you do need to see it for yourself if you haven't seen it. If you if you watched the favourite and enjoyed that, then certainly go back and look at the early work of of Lanthimos because Dog Tooth is is a absolutely superb absolutely superb piece of work and uh, yeah he's a director i'm very very fond of very 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 fond of um and yeah he's a unique unique vision i think for sure number four for me then is a film that rather ridiculously has been retitled village of the dolls but this is marvin cole it's another documentary uh recently we had the film um what was that even called? Welcome to Marvin Cole, which I haven't caught up with yet. And I'm not sure I will, to be honest, because I just didn't see that it needed to be made. Uh, and it's not very good. So. Right. Well, th <laughs> this is the source documentary, which tells this story of uh, a man, Mark Hogenkamp, who was viciously attacked in what seemed to be a homophobically motivated attack and left with 
crippling uh, injuries that leave him pretty much housebound. And in order to process his grief and his pain and his turmoil, he starts to construct sort of dioramas of the world with little models representing the people in his life or people that he's met and how they interact with one another. And these models sort of take on a life of their own. There's some local press interest and later they're exhibited and people start to appreciate what Hogenkamp has created. But the, the thing about what he did here seemingly is that there is no there was no intention for the work to be produced for the benefit of others this was simply a way of dealing with his situation and a way of finding um any kind of uh possibility of sort of continuing with his life and and not ending his own life uh, if we're honest and and managing to put one foot in front of the other and produce something and create something and I think there's something really powerful about that not just what this guy individually went through not just uh, the fact that there's creativity involved but the fact that it speaks to the creativity that's in all people and how that can help to um diminish I guess ameliorate or reduce the level of pain and suffering or at least help you through difficult times. I I can't recommend it enough. It's a really, really smart piece of work. It's really well put together and sort of lovingly crafted documentary, Marvin Cole. And a sad story, of course, and an upsetting story, but one that I think results in a lot of good where it could have been only only darkness. So yeah, I would recommend that one uh, for sure. And that's why it's so high on the list. That's my number four, Marvin Cole. Paul, what have you got at number three? I feel like I need an epic, just just hold a long note for this one with an epic, epic Hans Zimmer, epic Hans Zimmer score. Uh, This is Inception. Um, People might have heard of this one. Um, Certainly for me, one of the one of Nolan's strong, one of Nolan's strongest efforts, I think, as a film. Um, I think it's a a brilliant idea of. Thief Easter's Corporate Secrets by going into a dream and then into another dream and then deeper into a dream. Um, I think you like visually it's very, very, it's just an incredible piece of work visually. Like the effects work on this is is second to none and still really stands up today. Um, again, what I, what I love about what Nolan's brought to blockbusters is they're blockbusters with a brain. Um, I don't agree that this is so complicated that you can't understand it. I think the premise is fairly straightforward in, in my opinion. It's a dream within a dream within a dream. I don't, I don't get why people struggle with this necessarily. Um, and I just think it's yes yeah, one of those films that you go through it's got the perfect combination of incredibly short action scenes brilliant special effects and a, and again much like the Mission Impossible films a plot that you have to pay attention to to keep following it but isn't so but isn't so convoluted it loses you so for me it's kind of like these kind of films are like the perfect night out of the cinema for me um, and you've got a, a brilliant cast Leonardo DiCaprio is in this Michael Caine Joseph Gordon-Levitt Ellen Page, Tom Hardy, I think everyone's on great form here. And it's just, yeah, it's just a really, really good looking film and a thoroughly entertaining, uh, clever sci-fi blockbuster. So that is uh, Inception at number three. Nice. Uh, number three for me is a film that I probably need to rewatch because I don't know if it would fall a little bit um, with the passage of time in my estimation given maybe uh, the recent output of this particular film director but this is Four Lions from Chris Morris who is held in very high regard by me by you and I think by a lot of British comedy fans and sort of wider fans of comedy uh, around the world Uh, Chris Morris here stepping into directorial role in feature filmmaking for the first time and um, satirizing jihadist terrorists in a way that maybe only Chris Morris could at times it does feel maybe like the satire here could have cut a little bit bit deeper but just for all of the kind of stupidity and um, sort of 
really just well-written uh, observational comedy and sort of goofy comedy around these people that allows Morris to make a film about a subject that seems so taboo at the time. I mean, now for sure, but in 2010, perhaps even even more so. Um, and to do so with, with a good level, I think, of success and some grace notes and some subtlety at times uh, for all of the swallowing the sim card and rubber dinghy rapids and all the stuff that was endlessly quotable from this movie I think that the guy is intelligent and he brings that intelligence to the material here and he doesn't take it lightly uh, lightly I should say and that is essential in making a movie about this topic so uh, yeah I like Four Lions a lot I will revisit it soon but for now it's my number three of 2010. Uh, my number two of 2010, um, and again, I haven't seen this for quite a while, to be fair, but there are moments of this film that absolutely stick with me, and that's always the mark of a memorable film for, for me. Um, it was my first experience of director uh, Jacques Audiard. Uh, this is A Prophet, um, starring... Uh, this is a breakout turn for Tahir Rahim, um, basically playing um, a young Arab man is sent to a French prison um, and kind of gets involved um, and then the story kind of goes on from there it's assigned between the division of Corsicans and Muslims in the prison um, the Corsicans kind of rule what happens in the prison and the Muslims are kind of put upon and it's basically just this incredible incredibly powerful drama with some superb scenes in it with this guy uh, the, the young guy played is a 19 year old I think in this film played by um played by Tahir Rahim in this, he just kind of plays, he just plays each other off against each other, it plays both sides off against each other so well, and it's just incredibly well written, incredibly well shot, and it just, it's one of those films, again, that just knows how to use sporadic moments of, of intense violence, work really, really well, um, and it's just one of those films that's just so well put together, and I think Jack Audiard is, is I underrated, maybe, maybe underrated is the wrong word, I don't think he's quite as well known as some of his European contemporaries and I think he probably deserves to be so um, because Rust and Bone Camera before this, The Beat That My Heart Skipped is an incredible piece of work as well um, and yeah, A Prophet was my first exposure to Jacques Audiard and I thank him for it and that's why it sits at number two well, funnily enough, number two for me is A Prophet from the same director, Jacques Odiar. So, yeah, I, I won't really add too much to that, man. I mean, the, the lead performance here is is tremendous. Uh, there's so much of a sense of sort of gritty, intimidating, fearsome atmosphere about the movie that um, it's one of those that, that feels like it manages to capture what it might be like to suddenly mm. be in prison surrounded by, you know, all kinds of nefarious individuals and... Um, is yeah just a a bit of a gut puncher of a movie and um and I think definitely one of the best things that came out in the year 2010 so I mean it utterly deserves that position and yeah it's funny because you mentioned about Jacques Odier. I mean Rust and Bone to me is is a good film but not a great one mm. and I wonder whether um it's Sisters Brothers the Sisters Brothers have you seen that movie yet yeah, I, for me, I loved the book, and I just there was something a little bit lacking about the film, to be honest. It didn't it didn't quite work for me in the same way that the book had clicked with me. So I'd be interested for someone to see it who hasn't read the book because obviously you don't have that weight of expectation on it. Um, it's a well made film for sure, but um, yeah, I think a profit and the beat that my heart skipped certainly certainly highlights for me. Although I really like Rust and Bone as well, to be fair. But I see where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I I don't know, and, and Tahir Rahim as well. Like I'm not sure that Tahir Rahim has sort of sort of blown up into perhaps what I thought he might but mm. uh, maybe there's there's gaps there in in my you know in my knowledge of his work but look just looking down the list it seems to me that that might be the case but yeah it doesn't take anything away from the fact that a prophet is this sort of singular vision it's incredible um and incredibly uh uh 
hard hitting uh, for, for want of a, a better and more detailed description. So yeah, that's my number two as well. What's number one for you, Paul? At number one for me, and as I said, this kind of top three or top five was kind of interchangeable for me, but my number one, and I'll stick with it, is Four Lions, uh, which you've talked about remarkably well, to be fair, um, already, so I'm not going to add too much to that, except for the fact that it just... It was so brave to take this subject matter on in, in to start with, and I mean, he's always. If you look back on Chris Morris's earlier work on Brass, I, he's never been a, never been afraid of tackling controversial subjects, but to do it this well, and I think, um, I just think to do it this well was it's just it's just a mark of how clever he is as a writer. To be fair, um, and I think that like the fact it kind of and the fact that towards the end it not only took the piss out of the terrorists, it took the piss out of the police, it did try to tra- straddle both sides of the argument. Um, I watched it fairly recently, I think, so I can you'd be pleased to say that I'm kind of with you with his well, certainly with his last film, which I thought was a bit disappointing. This does hold up um really, really well. Um but yeah, just to manage just to manage to do this um and and make it funny and not it, it doesn't it never feels it, it's I think what's remarkable about it is it never feels like it's in bad taste considering the subject matter it's covering. And I think that's where that's what Chris Morris does so, so well with this. Um, whereas before his, his work's definitely straddled the, the lines, the lines with bad taste. This doesn't. And I think it's just a remarkably bold film um, for him to have the balls to make something like this and then to make such a success of it as well. So for me, that's probably the film I've watched the most out of this list since 2010, uh, which is part of the reason it's so high up as it is, is Four Lions. So for that reason, yeah, Four Lions is my number one film of two. 2010 nice i reckon you can probably guess what my number one film is shall i or shall yeah. I, i'll let you announce it well okay I, is it dogtooth it is indeed dogtooth yeah <laughs> uh, a dogtooth is it's one of those movies where i think that that you have to have that sort of bit of extra like sort of special source or something for something to be elevated to around the number one two or three on a list like this and for me what that is with dogtooth is not just sort of yeah of course retrospectively looking back lanthimos has gone on to be this director that everybody is falling over themselves to herald at this point and just throwing awards in his face uh but even way back then and this was my first Yorgos Lanthimos movie I caught up with out since but hadn't seen it at the time uh that that this was a story that was so inherently interesting to me because it's one of those particular sort of small sub subgenres of film I think that I find particularly interesting which is the uh the way in which children are raised has such a powerful effect on them subgenre right i'm thinking of something like uh, the apple which i've talked about a number of times on this show whenever i get the opportunity uh there's something like mustang perhaps is a, a good example mm. uh and here with dogtooth the very fact that a pair of uh, parents have convinced their own children that these are the rules of engagement when it comes to the outside world you cannot break them (laughs) the most fearsome creature is the creature we know as cat which funnily enough is one of the only items in the world that's given the same name that it's given to other people outside of that household because generally you know you've got like the lamp is called a fountain and you know all of the vocabulary is switched i'm glad you remember it more than i do because you're doing it a lot more justice than i did so i'm glad it was your number one (laughs) well yeah i mean it's it's fascinating to me for that reason i mean i you know make no secret of the fact that i work as a language teacher and i'm I'm really interested in, in language and i think that was so important to how much i enjoyed the movie because 
what the parents have done with their sort of systematic brainwashing of their kids is represented the world in a completely alternative way, where not only are the truths and lies of the world different, but then, oh, and something like Brigsby Bear as well, I suppose, comes comes mm. to mind. I think I mentioned it at the time when I talked about that. But like, they've also managed to recast the English language. I shouldn't say the English language. Of course, the film isn't in English, but to recast language with a completely alternative interpretation which sort of flips everything on its head for these kids and then the fact that all of the rules how would you know to disobey them if that's all that you know right if if you know that only father can take the vehicle that keeps you safe from the gases or whatever and the vehicle can only be the volvo and the volvo can only be driven by the father or whatever in in the movie then you know as a young person that is your reality and you run with that reality so yeah kind of like a um a real a statement of intent from a, a fairly young oh, film director yeah. at, at the time of, of just like a, a little bit like a calling card, like something similar to Primer, where someone puts down a marker and just says, OK, I'm making intelligent films for people who want to try to engage with them on my own terms. And you can kind of take that or leave it. Right. And if you're not if that's not your thing, move along. And if it is. I've got some things in store. And it turned out that that's, that's the case with Yorgos Lanthimos. So yeah, if people have, like you said, Paul, if people have only caught up with his stuff more recently and things like The Favourite, which obviously got a lot more press, go back and watch the early films because I think Dogtooth is one of his best films. Um, yeah. It, you know, that's a, maybe a top five we can do in the future at some point when he's put out a few more. But uh, yeah, that, that's my number one for this chart. Paul, do you want to just quickly run down your 10? Have you got them? Uh, no. <laughs> fair enough probably I should probably have can, I probably can run down my 10 to be fair so or can I do I remember it now uh, yeah I can run down my 10 I'm sure I can so I had Monsters uh, at number 10 um, what do I have at number 9 I believe I had Toy Story 3 at number 9 I think I had Blue Valentine at number 8 Black Swan at number 7 um, now I've forgotten what I had at number 6 Scott Pilgrim at number 6 was that number 4 I'm doing a bad job of this uh, yeah listen back to the earlier bit when I listed <laughs> my top 10 because this is the problem from not working from paperwork is I just uh Ruin my list. My top five, I can go with those. There was there was Scott Pilgrim in there. Um, there was Dogtooth was in there. Uh, Inception was in there. Um, the Prophet was in there, and Four Lions was there. I think if I've missed, I've possibly missed one. How strange a dragon, possibly. But yeah, uh, thanks yeah. for putting me on the spot there. Oh I no, it's it's shut my, down my fault. windows as I went. <laughs> it, it's my fault. Uh, yeah, I I for for what it's worth, I had Tucker and Dale versus Evil at ten, Kaboom at nine. Confessions at eight, tabloid at seven, and everything is going fine at six. I am love at five, uh, Marvin Cole at four, four lions at three, a prophet at two, and Dogtooth at one. And I just wanted to give a shout, Paul, to the uh, also rans of the year 2010, at least from my point of view. I mean, feel free to throw in any more, but this was, as I said at the outset, like pretty pretty good year, I'd say. We had also uh, Taika Waititi's movie Boy, which I think is is underseen and, and really good. Uh, certified Copy from Abbas Kiristami, which is uh, pretty great. Winter's Bone from Deborah Granick, which yep. um, is is uh, terrific. Senna, the uh, documentary, uh, really, really good. Uh, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, of course, from Werner Herzog. 
Um, the Trip, which was the first of those movies, which I really enjoyed at the time. Uh, Life During Wartime from Todd Salons. True Grit from the Coens. Uh, Buried. The Extraordinary Adventures of Adele Blanc-Sec, which I think is another one that's so I've a still bit... Not, I've still not seen it. I love Besson, so I need to catch up with that. To be yeah, fair. well worth it. Really good uh, Kick-Ass, fun. Kick-Ass, your favourite, Pete. That came out in 2010. <laughs> that was the, I enjoy, enjoy Kick-Ass still. Uh, Shutter Island, another one that came yep. out. Catfish um, was an entertaining premise, now completely ruined by the fact they flogged it to death. Um, but they've been doing the that time. show 10 years yeah. man. <laughs> yeah. people still fall for it <laughs> yeah uh, social network came out in 2010 right yeah that came close to my list to be fair i just haven't seen it i just haven't seen it for for such a long time that i yeah, didn't didn't quite make the list but yeah social network was good really good um film. in the the michelle williams uh, canon we have meek's cutoff from kelly reichardt which is really good fish tank that you mentioned before father of my children from mia hansen love which uh, i think fish is... tank nearly i should have put fish tank back on my list because that would have been in it but then i wasn't sure if it was a 2000 i think it was a 2009 release uk actually fish tank Right, I remember rightly. Oh, that um, might might well yeah. be the case. Uh, Cyrus from the Duplass Brothers. If anyone have, has caught on to our uh, sort of Duplass Brothers sideshow on this show, uh, check that out because it's really good with John C. Riley uh, and Marissa Tomei. Uh, Submarine uh, was this year. The kids are all right. Um, the other guys. If you want like a throw around comedy from, that was from fun, 2010, yeah. was pretty good. Lot of fun, yeah. uh, Merlin, which is the two part movie with Vincent Cassell as a guy breaking out from prison, going back to prison, and I think breaking out again. Uh, pretty good. Uh, Easy A, which was obviously the Emma Stone kind of breakout role after after um, what was the movie that I'm thinking of? Uh, the coming of age movie where Emma Stone was a supporting actress. Super bad. Yeah. yeah after Super one, Bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jackass 3D came out that year. 127 that, that hours. Was so close to my list. Jackass 3D. It was ne- nearly edged in there, to be honest. Yeah. So there's a bag of bag of other stuff to check out from 2010. If you want to go on a kick back a decade uh, to join in with the theme of today's show. But uh, that brings us to the end of today's show, doesn't it, Paul? So we've only got what, like uh, social media and stuff like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. But we will be back next week. Um, quite what we're doing yet was it remains to be remains to be seen. Uh, but we will be back next week. So we're going back to a weekly format for sure, which is nice. Uh, I look forward to it. Um, but if you can't get enough of us between now and next week, please go back and listen to the old episodes. Um, we've been going for a while now. If you've just tuned in and enjoy it, certainly go back through the old episodes. They're all widely available wherever you can get podcasts. So give us a listen. Um, and yeah, you can find us on at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers in a Cinema on Instagram and Facebook, or StrangersInACinema at gmail.com if you still use email these days. Um, yeah, you're more than welcome to get in touch. So yeah, thank you for listening and we'll be back next week. Shut up and sit down.